Welcome back to Mud Between Your Toes, Year Ender 2020. Actually, by the time you get this podcast, it'll be 2021. So, Happy New Year! In today's episode, you can listen to segments from my interviews with Mark Olden, Lisa Highwood, Lachlan Cahoon, and Keith Richberg. So, sit back and enjoy. My cousin Mark Olden is a journalist, TV producer, and author of the book Murder in Notting Hill. I'm talking to Mark today about his latest piece in the Guardian newspaper, which highlights the tragic story of how a person can simply fall through the cracks in the system, even in a first world country. This is Mark's story about how David Blagden spent 34 years in prison. His crime, setting fire to a set of curtains in an Oxfordshire church. So Mark Olden, cousin, welcome back to Conversations with Pete Wood. Thanks, Pete. Great to talk to you again. Mark, I interviewed you in season one about the lives of your mother and father, actors Andrew and Susan Ray. This week, you're here to discuss something slightly more troublesome and paradoxical, and that's the puzzling and appalling story of David Blagden. Yes. Um, <clears throat> David, I, 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 um, I came across the case of David um, back in the late 1990s. Uh, there was a small article in, um, I think it was the Oxford Mail, which I came across initially. And at that point, David had spent more than 20 years or just over 20 years in prison for setting fire to uh, a pair of church curtains when his life was at sort of complete breaking point. Um, and I became um, appalled by the case, as you said, and, and made contact with David. And from there, um, I began to um, <clears throat> understand how this man had, could, could end up in prison for so long. And in fact, as you said, in the end, he spent 34 years in prison for this victimless crime of setting fire to a pair of church curtains in an, in an empty church in Oxfordshire. I first met him in, in um, Lindholm Prison, which is in, um, uh, near Doncaster in Yorkshire. Um, and he then was 48 years old and he was older and more anxious than most of the other prisoners and cut a slightly, he cut a different figure to all the others who were hugging their girlfriends and seemed to have families. And um, <clears throat> he had nobody, he, he had both his foster parents had died by that point and he'd had a terrible backstory which we could probably go into. Um, but he was anxious and um, he was just really in despair that he'd been in prison for so long. And from there, I started writing to him and, and carried on visiting him and um, carried on writing about his case up until now, really. His case really does highlight multiple failures on the part of all the sort of public bodies who were involved with his story. Um, and I, I can go back and sort of from, in fact, from the moment he was born, you could see lots of failures in the system where, as you said in your introduction, quite rightly, he just seemed to fall through the cracks time and time again. Obviously, David in his own life made a lot of um, wrong decisions just when his case was looking promising, just when things were starting to 
happened for him, he would often take the wrong turning and sabotage his own case, which was a kind of form of self-harm, perhaps. Um, but yes, it, it, his, his case illuminates multiple systemic failures in the prison system, in, in the UK, in the probation system, in the care system. And as I said, it started really from day one of his life. He was fostered when he was um, a baby to a family called the Blagdons. And um, <clears throat> they were clearly a very unsuitable family for fostering anybody. Um, and David, in both his psychiatric reports and occasionally it was a very, very painful thing for him to talk about, but was, was sexually abused by his, his foster mother between the ages of nine and 14. And his foster mother also took to her bed for, for 18 years. And this is all in the official report. I'm, I mean, she sounds like a head case. Absolutely. She was in her bed for 18 years after, her, after another foster child, um, a, a baby she fostered, died. And David effectively left school at that point to look after her. So they, there's the first point where you can ask, where are the authorities at that point? And at that point also, he started getting into trouble and started building up a criminal record. Mark, you know, wasn't he accused of smothering the child? I mean, I know this accusation is completely groundless because the child died of bronchial pneumonia, but imagine yeah. being eight years old and being accused of smothering your foster brother. Yeah, he wasn't actually accused. He, he seemed to get it in his own mind that he had smothered um, the baby brother, his baby foster brother. But in fact, as you say, it, you know, there was no question of that. In fact, the, the child died of um, bronchial pneumonia. Um, when it came to his trial for this arson on the church, there was conflicting evidence among the psychiatrists who, eva who had evaluated him. One of them thought he, he had um, a mental illness or low-grade schizophrenia, and he did have a history of self-harm. He had a maze of scars in his arms. He tried to jump off a multi-story car park building. He had um, <clears throat> taken overdoses and been sectioned. But two of the other psychiatrists, which would indicate, obviously, that would all indicate he had serious mental health problems, but two of the other psychiatrists um, thought that he didn't have a mental health, but he had this large fund of aggression, which um, was either directed at himself or at society. All three of them saw that he posed some danger, but it was how to treat him, which was the issue. So when it came to his court, his trial at Oxford Crown Court, the judge was in a real quandary because of the conflicting evidence, whether to send him to a high security hospital or to send him to prison. And he suggested adjourning for further medical opinion. It does appear that the judge was tortured by the case. Um, mm -hmm. And he says, you have sustained a great many hardships and you've been deprived of affection when perhaps you needed it most. But my regrettable function at this stage of your life is to protect the public from a person I see as dangerous. Mm -hmm. I impose the sentence that I'm going to, with a heavy heart, because I personally wish it was otherwise, you will go to prison for life. Yet uh, the, the judge had reservations with his sentencing, didn't he? Not long after, he felt compelled to write to the then Home Secretary, Merlin Rees, in a, in a just society, Blagden should not be in prison, but in a secure place where he could be offered and given treatment. Yeah. Would that have made a big difference to his life? 
It probably would have, but also um, some of these high security hospitals, people can get lost in them as well. But I think, I think it, it definitely, that was another point of intervention where David's path could have been very different. Indeed. Uh, I mean, Mark, you say you got to know Blagden after you interviewed him in the 1990s, uh, but he actually ended up on your doorstep in Notting Hill a couple of times when he was either out on parole or had absconded from open prison. Um, and he always came with a rather convoluted tale. Tell us about these unannounced visits. Yes. Um... As, as prisoners are moved towards open prison, to, uh, towards the end of their sentences or to prepare them for release, they're often given day release or home leave. And, you know, one of David's fatal flaws was that whenever he was let out of prison in this kind of release, well, not whenever, but frequently, he would run away and disappear. Partly some, probably some kind of self-harm to sabotage his case. And also because he felt the burning injustice that he had been in prison for decades. So the first time it happened um, with me, where he turned up on my doorstep, I was at this dodgy music talent show somehow how in Essex, and I got all these, a series of missed calls on my phone. Uh, and when I listened to a message, it was David at a phone box in King's Cross, and somehow he'd caught a bus from Derbyshire down to London with six quid in his pocket, and turned up. And he, as, as you said, he made up some convoluted story about his wallet being stolen and getting lost. So I sent him around to my neighbours, because I wasn't there, who were luckily very good friends of mine, <laughs> understandable. And he turned up and um, one of them was German and they had some German cousins over and they found themselves in the company of a man who by that point had been in prison for 23 years and, um, you know, and was on the run. So when I, when I got back, uh, we eventually talked, he crashed out on my couch, and then I spoke to his solicitor, Anita Bromley, who was an incredibly um, incredibly dedicated woman and incredibly good to David over the years. Um, and we found that perhaps the best way we could do it is try to get him back to prison somehow, and then the damage to his case might be limited. So we arranged, I arranged to get him on a train at Euston. Someone was going to pick him up, no stops to Milton Keynes. Supporter was going to pick him up in Milton Keynes, drive him to the prison. In fact, the train, the Virgin train, made an unscheduled stop at Watford. David was off on the run for another three days. Um, case got lots of publicity. And there were other occasions when that happened, when he turned up on my doorstep, which probation started getting a little bit worried about me and his lawyer had seen us as sort of um, as complicit in his, in his case in some ways. But, um, uh, you know, as complicit in, in, in him running away, which obviously we weren't. But... Uh, you know, and David was, was, was a great character, really, and, and Anita's patience was unbelievable. I remember once when he ran away and he was caught and he tried to say that Anita had told him to run away and said, keep your head down, son. Which if you knew Anita, you know, who's a very well-spoken um, lady, the last thing you can imagine her saying is, keep your head down, son. Um, but, you know, yeah, that was, that was David. I mean, you've already mentioned this. It does seem that he was his own worst enemy. In fact, you say the system holds on to people who spend their days in prison railing against sentences they see as grossly unfair. Essentially what you're saying, that under the current UK penal system, if you believe you're innocent, it's best to shut up. 
Exactly, because you're supposed to go, you know, there are loads of courses you're supposed to go on, which, which are right for people who've committed horrendous offences, where you're supposed to understand your offence and, uh, and, and uh, to protect the public and future, to see, see where you're at. But if you, if you believe that you're in prison unjustly, then these cases, are, then, then all these courses that you're supposed to go on are meaningless and you don't tick the boxes that you're supposed to to get through the system and David never ticked those boxes even though the actual risk he posed w w was extremely minimal I mean he never committed another crime since setting fire to the church curtains in 1978 all the times he was out and he had one period when he was out for four years of unbroken freedom he posed no risk and he, he committed no further crimes and um wasn't a danger to society, but because he couldn't fit into the boxes of the risk assessments that are done by various psych psychologists and probation service, you know, that always uh, hampered him. Finally, in May 2018, the parole board directed his release, uh, but he was stuck in jail for a further nine months. Why was that? It was because of arguments, you know, obviously he was physically declining and he needed uh, a lot of care and that care is costly. And because of all the cuts to the prison service or the local, local authority cuts, no one really wanted to pay for his care. And there were huge arguments over who should pay for it. And in this, David's case is, is really um, mirrored by loads of other cases. This is, this is very, very common now because we've got in the UK, uh, an aging prison population. Um, so, so prisons are in some ways becoming care homes because there's nowhere else for these people to go. And even when, as in David's case, people are directed to, to be released, there's nowhere for them to go. Um, and care homes are very expensive. So you've got prison officers becoming carers. You have um, these ancient Victorian prisons which aren't built for people with wheelchairs and um, or, and people with the kind of physical disabilities which David had at that time, ending up as, as, as care homes. So this is, this is something which is happening right now. And David was part of, sort of David's story fitted into this, into this pattern. He did finally get moved to a care home, but his health declined. And in December last year, David died in hospital aged 68. Yeah. David Blagden had been in prison for more than 34 years, on and off, but made it for 34 years or half of his existence after setting fire to a pair of church curtains. It's extraordinary. Were it not for Lisa Highwood, who founded the Tiki Highwood Foundation in 1994, the plight of the pangolin would look bleak. They are commonly referred to as the most trafficked mammal in the world. Their scales are used as an ingredient in traditional Chinese medicine. Sadly, this demand is driving transnational smuggling of their scales to unprecedented heights. During the last five years, an estimated 140 tons of pangolin scales have been confiscated, and the rate at which they are being seized is growing significantly. 
Hong Kong and China continue to be persistent hotspots for seizures of pangolin scales. However, during the last three years, Vietnam and Nigeria have moved into third and fourth slots. The Tiki Highwood Foundation is a wildlife-based NGO in memory of Lisa's father, the late Tiki Highwood. Lisa realized that there's a niche that is often overlooked in wildlife conservation, the preservation of species that lack the charisma and appeal of the larger, more publicized rare animals. Lisa is here today to talk to me about the foundation, the pangolins, and a few other critters. So Lisa Highwood, welcome to Conversations with Pete Wood. Good morning, Pete. How are you doing? Thank you for having me. Oh, it's a pleasure. Tell me about your father and what inspired you to start the foundation. Pete, my dad was, um, you know, I think there's always a, a very big connection between fathers and daughters. And um, my relationship with my dad was, uh, was one of these such relationships. And so growing up, I had a very close understanding of um, the person that my dad was. And obviously, I admired him greatly. Um, but equally, he, he was my biggest teacher of life and what life was about. Um, and so on his passing, we as a family wanted to do something in his memory and we weren't 100% sure what that would look like. We didn't know whether it would be a bursary or something in his, in, in his name. Um, because my dad was a businessman, he wasn't actually involved in conservation uh, per se. He did get involved, um, but it wasn't uh, you know, his core focus. Um, and so when uh, my dad died in 1992, uh, Zimbabwe was undertaking probably the worst drought or, or had been affected by the worst drought ever in history. And so um, the, the brainchild of the first elephant translocation from Klemkutsi was underway. And uh, I trottled off, went down to the low felt and said, right, I'm here to help, wanting to do something with funds that had been raised in lieu of flowers at my dad's funeral. And um, Three months later, I returned to Harare after being in the bush with a whole bunch of amazing individuals. Clem could see one of those such individuals. And we had partaken in moving 689 elephants from one of Zimbabwe's largest national parks, Ghana Resort, to um, smaller conservancies because the elephants were dying um, due to lack of uh, food and water in one such park. So that, that for me, I suppose, was what launched the seed of like-minded people coming together and having a common goal and being able to get in a room, um, bash out some differences, understand you know, the challenges, and then put a program together and just go out and do it. And in 1994, or early 1994, Ken Kutsi came to me and said, right, Lisa, um, you, you, know, you were involved in the first translocation of elephants. What about the bull elephants? Because in the first translocation, it was only matriarchal herds. So there were no bull elephants that were moved. Obviously the size of the bulls were, was something to take into consideration. And because of the size, the drug dosages had not been perfected. So it took Clem, you know, the, the whole 92, 93 translocation to work on perfecting the drug dosages and the containers, et cetera, to handle bull elephants. And, the Tiki Highwood Foundation was actually launched um, off the back of moving the first ever bull elephants um, from, a from a commercial farming area into a campfire area. 
I think not very many people knew that we were involved in, in such a translocation. So that's what started the Tiffany Highwood Foundation, um, Pete. And then from that experience, what I saw was that there are a lot more animals that are in grave danger of becoming extinct. Um, in Zimbabwe, we have an abundance, an overabundance of elephants. So in Zimbabwe, elephants are not even threatened. Um, globally, yes, they are, but within our country, they are not. So I wanted the focus of the Tiffany Highwood Foundation to be on, as you mentioned earlier, the less charismatic, but the equally important and necessary species, such as Lichtenstein hartebeest, which is Zimbabwe's rarest animal, um, the pangolin, the hedgehog, all these small little animals that are very much part of the ecosystem um, and, and species that we believe should, should not and never be overlooked. Um, and, you know, I think a lot of people believe that we started the foundation and wanted to do pangolin, well, we didn't. I chose the pangolin as the logo because in Zimbabwe, the pangolin is a species that is highly revered. And in 1975, long before many people even knew what a pangolin was, the Zimbabwean government placed the pangolin on the specially protected species list in country. And so the pangolin is highly revered within our country, within Zimbabwe. And because I revered and honored my father, um, I chose the pangolin as my logo because it was my respect that I was giving to my father and chose the pangolin. Um, and so I didn't really set out to save pangolin, if the truth be known. Um, but then in October of 1994, the authorities phoned me and said, we have an animal that um, was being poached and we need you to go and get it. So I drove some three um, hours away from Harare and arrived on the side of the road to a group of people with a sack. And when I opened the sack, there looking up at me was one slightly blued eye and uh, it was a pangolin. It was the very first pangolin that I'd seen and I froze because I actually did not know what to do. Um, there was nothing that prepared me for that first moment when I saw a pangolin, when I was in the presence of a pangolin. And that's where our journey as a Tikawa Foundation started, was in October 1994. I had lunch today with somebody who didn't know what a pangolin is. So let's be clear, a pangolin is a mammal, it suckles its young, um, and yet it has scales on it, so it looks like a, a reptile. Um, and it's poached because of the keratin in, in the scales. Is there actually any medicinal value to it? And can keratin be manufactured artificially? Um, okay, let me try and break <laughs> that one question down and, and, and just jump in if I've missed anything. Yeah. Okay, so firstly, um, pangolins are consumed for multiple purposes. In Asia, the pangolin is used both, the scales are used for medicinal purposes, as well as um, the meat consumed by the people. Um, in Africa, you've got, we break Africa up as a continent. West and Central Africa, there is still a large base of um, uh, indigenous people that eat pangolin um, as part of the bushmeat, and pangolins are traded in the bushmeat. And then uh, throughout Africa, there is a medicinal relevance to pangolin. Um, like in Zimbabwe, you know, our Samgomas or our witch doctors will occasionally have a scale or, or some part of the pangolin as part of their um, toolbox, for a better, better word, or medicine box. Um, 
So, so that breaks it down. There is, in all countries, there is no scientific proof that anything from a pangolin actually will help said person, um, regardless of what they're being treated for. So we need to put that out. What I'd also like to add to that is that for every um, mammalian cure, there is a botanical cure. So I'm not sure if I've made myself very yeah. clear. So yeah. For instance, let's say we wanted to take um, some pangolin scale for arthritis. There is an equal replacement in the botanical world, i.e. I could have a bark of a something that will do exactly the same thing. So my point being is we, as humankind, we do not actually need to kill animals for medicine because mm. there is a botanical um, replacement for any cure in, in the animal world. Pete, we actually have a 24-7 rescue center in Zimbabwe. And so any wild animal that is um, uh, orphaned or injured or um, needs assistance, we will support. So we, in our past, we've done uh, cheetah, leopard, otter, pangolin, genet. I mean, the list is fairly long. Um, we're probably the longest standing organization in Zimbabwe. We are a um, uh, equivalent of an NGO in Zimbabwe. We, in Zimbabwe, it's called a PVO. Um, and we've been operating since 1994 and we'll take on any injured or orphaned wild animal. So one of the reasons why we ventured into policy and legislation is because I really realized early on about this trafficking of, of wildlife. Um, and a lot of it is in the exotic pet world. It's for medicinal purposes. Um, it, it, it's, it's driven by man's greed. And what concerned me is that we don't have a lot of time. You know, a lot of conservation bodies or people, they say, we're doing this for the next generation. Well, I don't think we actually have the next generation to worry about. We have today, now, and our own generation to worry yeah. about. And that's what we need to be focused on. So for me, um, I wanted to affect change. And the one way where, we, where I do believe we can affect change is through the law. And that is why the Tikihawe Foundation has spent a large portion of its um, energy in working with the authorities to improve or, or change, adapt, or re even introduce uh, policies that will protect these animals. We as a foundation believe that all animals, wherever possible, need to be returned to their, their wild natural land and not be viewed or seen in captivity. Um, so African Parks is an organization that has been working throughout Africa and is developing these sanctuaries within the different countries. Um, and some of the countries are in civil war and there's a there are a lot of um, hurdles uh, in order to achieve this, but it allows land to be protected and it allows um, organizations like ourselves to be able to um, rescue, rehabilitate animals and put them back into safe spaces that are protected under African parks. So how can we help as individuals? Do you, um, does the foundation rely on donations? Yes, obviously, uh, you know, funding is always an important thing. But one of the things I would like to just bring up on this platform, if I may, Pete, is yeah. that each one of us are responsible. And, you know, a lot of people will say to us, okay, how can we help you, Lisa? Well, I think that conservation, it starts with us. It starts with the I. We need, as, as a human race, we need to start 
making an impact. And it's all very well and easier sometimes to say, okay, well, I'll support that person over there who's saving that, be it a humanitarian organization or be it a conservation organization. Bring it home. What can I do in my space to help this globe become a better globe? So all these things are about individuals and we as individuals need to look at ourselves and say, what can I do within my space, wherever I am, be, I, be it in Zimbabwe or be it like you in Hong Kong, what can we do to make this globe a better place for all of us? So if anyone is interested to find out more about the Tiki Highwood Foundation and the work that they do, um, you can go to their website, uh, Tiki Highwood Foundation. Dot org. That's T-I-K-K-I-H-Y-W-O-O-D foundation.org. Um, that's about it. We're out of time. Lisa Highwood, thank you so much. It's been fascinating hearing about the extraordinary work that you do. Please keep it up. And thank you so much for joining me on Conversations with Pete Wood. Hello, I'm going slightly off topic this week to talk to Australian journalist Lachlan Cahoon about his new project, Australian Lives. Australian Lives seeks to create an online space where the life stories of Australians can be stored, collected, curated, honored, and read. The site is rich in content and stories about Aussies who have made a difference. And the two people we're going to chat about today are Lachlan's parents, Des and Meg Cahoon, a couple who, by all accounts, were total characters from the old school of cigarette-smoking, gin-swilling raconteurs. So Lachlan Cahoon, welcome back to Conversations with Pete Wood. It's a pleasure, Pete. Lachlan, we last chatted in series one, mainly about my book, Mud Between Your Toes, which of course you were the editor. But this week I want to chat about your mum and dad who sounded like characters who would have been quite at home sitting at a Parisian cafe chatting to Hemingway and Galhorn. Indeed, the Australian media said that your father, Des, was Australia's most gregarious man. That's quite a statement from a country with well, quite a few gregarious men. Absolutely. Uh, Dad was, um, was one of the old school journalistic characters. He was like um, classic um, copy boy to, to editors uh, via a foreign correspondent uh, role in the, in the 60s and, and, and 70s and uh, always had a cigarette hang out of his mouth, never far away from a bar or a drink. Um, always thought that his best work was done uh, in a bar talking to people and uh, and yeah, just just an absolute love, loved a party, and and seemed to have a inexhaustible energy for for it all, and uh, a very colourful person. I mean, you talk about the old school. If anyone knows about the lifestyles of newspaper editors from the old days, they will recognise your father's love of the long lunch, which, according to you, extended well past dinner time and more occasionally into the next day. This made him a larger-than-life figure. Now, as you know, my own father was a similar character, and I must say, as kids, we found this quite fascinating, if not slightly tedious at times. Was it the same with you kids? Well, it was exhausting because um, we'd... Dad was very rarely at home. I'd have to say it wasn't until, uh, honestly, I became a journalist, a cadet journalist at 18, and uh, 
and dad was working on the same floor as me, the advertiser. And that was when we actually connected as father and son, because prior to that, he wasn't, he wasn't around very much. He was at work or work, you know, in inverted commas, was, uh, was basically um, drinking and, and partying. But uh, just to give you an idea, dad was a correspondent for the Herald and Witty Times group in, in London in the, in the 1960s, from about uh, 62 to, to 65 or 66. Um, in fact, um, I was um, adopted at the age of six weeks and at the age of seven weeks, we were on the boat to London where dad was to take up his position. Um, and in those days, what he did was um, he basically uh, covered um, the UK and Europe for um, a group of Australian newspapers. And because of the time zones, he was always working at night. And um, this was at the, um, the Herald and Weekly Times office just off, off the Strand. And uh, invariably, he'd end up at, at a bar with all the printers um, uh, after work. And, Often they were mixing with the um, uh, with the theatrical crowd. The thespians from Shaftesbury Avenue had come down from the West End, and um, the story is that he uh, got um, got drinking and became drinking buddies with with Peter O'Toole, Lawrence of Arabia, and then uh, and then Oliver Reed. So they'd um, O'Toole would, would come off stage in Shaftesbury Avenue. Dad had finished work at the Herald Monthly Times. They'd catch up for a drink and, and continue on until really you know um, the early hours of the morning. Um, sometimes with Oliver Reed, who apparently. They both drank under, drank under the table. Apparently, their dad said that Oliver Reed was a lightweight, <laughs> and um, and invariably would. Uh, I was only like about two or three at the time, um, so I have very dim memories of this. My sister, who's older, can remember that um, Peter O'Toole and, and Dad would uh, would show up at our flat um, at Wimbledon at about sort of ten thirty a.m. after drinking all night and into the morning, uh, and Mum would would have to make breakfast for them. Um, so that's the sort of thing that we had to put up with. Um, but mum never, never minded. I mean, she always said when Peter O'Toole came on television, she said, oh, he could put his shoes under my bed anytime. So I guess, <laughs> she, didn't really, I guess she didn't really mind. Also, Barry Humphreys, um, Dame Edna Everidge, was, uh, was in, um, on the scene around about that time. And dad uh, had a bit to do with him and always claimed that um, he wrote some of the earlier skits or that Humphreys had uh, appropriated some of his ideas, although we were never <laughs> able to prove that, of course. And why shouldn't it be, anyway? And also in London, of course, uh, your dad covered some of the huge stories of the 1960s, the Profumo affair, Churchill's death in 65, Britain's entry into the common market, and also Beatlemania. Did he ever meet any of the Beatles? Well, yes, he did. Um, I mean, we, were, we had a, um, like a Dormerville camper van. That, um, that we were driving around the UK and eventually drove um, on holiday through Europe. And I can remember, it would have been, um, it would have been three, it's one of the first things that I could actually remember being alive on the planet was uh, we were off on, um, off on a bit of a holiday in the country and Dad said, oh, I've just got to pull in here and interview the Beatles. And um, they were actually um, um, filming um, A Hard Day's Night at the time. Um, so we pulled into the lot and, um, and my sister, my mum and I, um, you know, we had a sandwich or something and a cup of tea and mum had a cup of tea. And dad went off to, to interview the Beatles on, on the set of A Hard Day's Night and came back and he said, well, that Paul McCartney was very, very pleasant, but, uh, but John was a bit standoffish, he said. <laughs> so, um, so, so yeah, he did that. I mean, you mentioned Church of Funeral, that was um, 1965. Um, that's actually the first thing that I can, re I can remember in, um, in life, being alive on this planet, was being in dad's office in um, the Herald and Times, looking out over the Strand as the household cavalry came down the Strand with um, Churchill's coffin with the Union Jack draped on it, um, just passing underneath me. It's the first thing that I can actually remember. So Des, your father, moved into journalism at the Adelaide Advertiser in 1947. And this yep. would be where he met his lifelong friend, fellow copy boy, Don Riddell. 
or is it R- Don Riddle or Don Riddell? Riddell, Riddell. Riddell. Yeah. Um, and he was another character who also went on to becoming uh, editor in chief of the Advertiser. Yes, yes. Don and Don and uh, Des were, were great friends. I've got a fantastic photograph of them uh, on the uh, on the um, the boat. They in in the early 1950s um, they they took a year off and went to to England where they were supposed to conquer the world of journalism. Uh, and this fantastic picture of the two of them sort of uh, larking around on the MV Strathmore, just out of Fremantle, on on their way to London. So, so they're lifelong lifelong friends. Don's uh, still alive today, and I still have quite a lot of contact with him. So, uh, but yeah, so they went off to to England in the fifties, rode uh, a tandem push bike all over England, and weren't able to work as journalists because I think there was a, uh, um, I think there was a um, a ban on on foreign journalists, National Union of Journalists in the UK. Wasn't, le- wasn't letting foreign journalists work in the UK newspapers. So um, hopes of working in the British media were dashed. So um, Dad and Don ended up uh, cycling around um, England on a tandem bicycle, living in these um, burnt and um, bombed out buildings from the, from the Blitz and, uh, and working on pig farms. <laughs> so, so that's what they, they ended up doing. So, so Des meets the unflappable Maureen Enid Glastonbury. Um, mm-hmm. Their engagement survived uh, Cahoon's European adventure, and they were married in 1953. And despite her parents' reservations, this became a famous union, which continued until their death six months apart in 2005. Passionate, well, full yes. of jokes, wit, parties, wild dreams. And yet, despite that, they became, your mum and dad became one of South Australia's power couples of the 1970s and 80s. What was it like growing up in Adelaide on, I think, Simpson Parade? From what I read, the house rapidly became a social hub and a crossroads of journalism and hospitality and politics and arts and a little bit of winemaking. It sounded like the Bloomsbury of South Australia. It was a little bit. I mean, South Australia in the uh, in the in the 1970s was it was it's a very interesting period. I mean, I grew up there, so of course I'm very biased. But it had traditionally been extremely conservative, uh, and then in the late 1960s, um, um, a premier was elected, Don Dunstan, who was a Labor premier, um, openly uh, bisexual, wore pink shorts to Parliament. Um, South Australia was the first state in Australia to uh, to decriminalise homosexuality. Um, they started up the Festival of Arts, um, and South Australia was very affluent and wealthy then. The manufacturing base was still uh, was still very vibrant, so it was a, a affluent but enlightened and, um, and progressive society. And at, at that time, there were a lot of people who um, Queenslanders, for example, who uh, were living under a very um, you know a dark regime, the conservative regime of the National Party under the Jockey Peterson. They all flocked to Adelaide, um, and I. I was born in you know, the early 60s. I remember as a teenager going out and meeting a lot of people who uh, were exiles from uh, other parts of Australia who'd come to South Australia because of its uh, progressive um, policies and, and just the pro- progressive atmosphere there. And so mum and dad um, were sort of the apex of that in a way. You know, um, If anybody was in town who was like a, you know, d- directing, it was the director of the Festival of Arts or um, visiting newspaper editor, they would invariably um, find their way to our house and to, for drinks. Um, you know, I was always being woken up at um, you know two a.m. in the morning, even if it was a school night. So I had to come down and meet so, so and so, some travelling Nigerian newspaper editor who was in town, or or a group of travelling Nigerian newspaper editors. Um, you know, and I was learnt to um, you know pour them drinks and make sure that um, you know the the beer glass was tilted to the right extent, so I didn't put too much of a head on the beer or give them their their champagne. And mum would be roused up, and all of a sudden, sort of volivants with um, with sort of a 
crab paste would be would be distributed, or, <laughs> you know, that sort of thing, you know. Um, and but it was all very spontaneous. Um, and Dad would just, but yes, anybody who was in town um, would be would 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 meet up with Dad and invariably would end up at our house. Even the likes of um, former Prime Minister Bob Hawke would. Uh, um, I remember him coming over. Um, you know, I mean, things like uh, Dad and and Bob Hawke, two famous drinkers. This is when Hawke was drinking. Um, I remember they, they crashed an undertaker's convention once um, out at one of the uh, the major hotels in uh, in Adelaide. Walked in there after they'd been to dinner, crashed the undertaker's convention, got blind drunk, abused everybody, and and uh, were told later that they were never going to be invited back because they'd scandalised this group of undertakers. During this time, your father was seconded to work as press attaché to the British royal family on their visits to Australia in the 1960s. In fact, the Queen Mother uh, remembered your father rather fondly, um, despite your dad being a staunch Republican. Did he actually enjoy these assignments? Oh, I, I think he did, Pete. Yeah, I mean, he. Um, I think he got got on particularly well with the with the former Queen Mother. Um, after um, my father passed away, we were going through a whole lot of um, stuff um, in. In, in his drawers, the stuff we'd never seen before, and there was a there was one sort of um, handwritten note on the uh, on on the on the um, the paper of the um, um, Royal Yacht um, Britannia, um, and um, it was uh, written by the Queen Mother in her, in her handwriting. It said, "Oh, Des, you were such a help at the cocktail party last night. Thank you so much for your wit and humour." <laughs> so, so I think that um, I, I don't. I think that the um, Queen Mother liked a G and T and also a glass of champagne. And I think um, I think she had a, um, a hilarious time with um, with with Dad. Uh, you know, typical of the age, your folks were enthusiastic smokers and drinkers. Um, and your dad, you say, survived largely on Vegemite sandwiches and minestrone soup. But yes. um, it was actually your mum who passed away first. Yeah, well, that was a big surprise to, to all of us, Pete. Um, in her family, um, there was a history of, of longevity. Her mother, for example, li lived well into her 90s, as did her, 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 um, her sisters, my, uh, my mother's aunts. Um, and it was always, um, you know, dad was the one. He had a triple heart bypass operation at 49, you know, um, and used to smoke 80 Peter Stuyvesant's a day drink um, drink all day and, and eat a Vegemite sandwich on white bread. So he was always a candidate for um, for, for, for going early. But uh, yeah, so, but mum was so stoic that um, that she, I don't think she ever really told any of us that, um, that she was ill or had problems, you know. Um, so it was a big surprise. Um, she just um, collapsed after lunch um, one Sunday. I wasn't there. I was living in the state at the time and, uh, and passed away within, uh, within a couple of hours. Um, and then your dad was gone six months later. That's right. He was, yeah. So they, yes, within six months, um, mm. I, I lost both of them. So, you know. What's the link to Australian yeah, Lives? Uh, well, www.australianlives.com.au. Lachlan, I think it might be good to leave on a quote from an obituary about your father in an Australian national, um, and it goes like this. Other people can write, other people are tolerant, but there's only one Cahoon who can write 1,500 columns on the front page of the newspaper and still have people smiling. He doesn't write down to us or up to us or even at us. He talks to us in best advertiser style. He is unique.
Keith Richburg is an American journalist who spent more than 30 years working for the Washington Post, reporting from Southeast Asia, Middle East, China, Hong Kong, Europe, and of course, Africa. He also covered the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, even riding a horse partway across the Hindu Kush. He's currently director of the Journalism and Media Studies Center of the University of Hong Kong. There's a lot under his belt. So Keith is here today to talk to me largely about his time spent in Africa between 1991 and 1994, from which he wrote a best-selling book, Out of America, A Black Man Confronts Africa. The book provoked controversy in the African-American community due to its perceived criticism of Africans. So without much ado, Keith Richburg, it's a pleasure to have you on Conversations with Pete Wood. Thank you, Pete. It's good to be here. As the Washington Post correspondent for Africa, you witnessed the Rwandan genocide, civil war in Somalia, cholera in Zaire, but it was your book, Out of America, that caused just a few tongues to wag around the world. You are African-American, and I'm going to quote you from your book. Thank God my nameless ancestor, brought across the ocean in chains and leg irons, made it out alive. Thank God I am an American. Do you still stand by that comment, given the state of America today? Well, you know, at the time we're recording this, we were just about to ready to go into an election, <laughs> which will, uh, I might, I might be do a cop out and say, ask me after the election, whether I still feel that way. No, but absolutely. Absolutely. I feel that way because when I look at uh, what's happening now and what's happening in America now with this reckoning of, of, of racial inequality and, uh, and coming to terms with these, uh, you know, decades or really centuries of racial injustice in America, I think that only goes to really prove you know, one of the main points I was trying to make in the book, which is America, for all of its flaws, has this way of eventually getting things right and eventually redeeming itself. And I'm starting to see that now. Um, perhaps we had to go through the kind of the, the nightmare of the last four years of President Trump's administration to kind of come to that point. Um, unfortunately, it had to uh, you know, be the death of George Floyd under a policeman's knee, but we're finally coming to terms with that kind of injustice that we uh, had to see in, in the United States in terms of race relations. And I guess one of the main points of the book that I tried to make at the time was that uh, Black Americans have this chance to kind of always uh, try to make America a better place and try to make America live up to what its ideals were. And that, that was the point I was trying to make in, in the book, which is despite all of its flaws, uh, despite all of the problems that we know about, you know, in terms of discrimination against blacks and the uh, uh, more blacks below the poverty line than than uh, you know than any other minority or ethnic group in in the United States, it is still the land where we can make things right, where we can reinvent ourselves, where eventually you know we try to tackle these issues and eventually we sometimes get it right. America is a flawed place in many ways, but as a you know, Barack Obama and many others have said, we're always trying to perfect that union. And I think that's where people, particularly overseas, get it wrong. They think America goes around the world trying to say, we're a perfect country and you can be like us and you should emulate us. Instead, we are still trying to perfect that union where everyone is created equal, et cetera, et cetera. So that 
you know, and again, I mean, we, 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 despite all the flaws, I think one of the things America is good is at reinvention, reinventing, reinventing itself and uh, trying to make itself a better place. We don't always get it right. But again, I mean, I don't know when this will, if this will be airing after the U.S. election going on, but I'll bet you we have a course correction uh, in the offing. I mean, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's kind of funny, but, you know, it's, it's, and it, it's become a bit of a cliche in American politics to say that, you know, we're, we, America does better not, by, not when it's showing off its military power, but when it's showing off its ideals, you know, or in other words, you know, it's, it's the example of our, it's, it's the power of our example, not the example of our power you know, that moves people, you know, because I'm, you know, from where I'm living now in Hong Kong, you know, I, you know, I, I noticed that when these young protesters in 2019 were marching through the streets, so many of them were waving American flags and calling on the United States to step in and help, you know, they weren't calling on, you know, other countries, you know, they were, you know, they see the United States as this one that was going to uphold these values of human rights. Now, I think that was partly misplaced because the president who was in power at the time, President Trump, had no interest in uh, getting involved in what was happening in Hong Kong because he was a much more transactional president. But when you look around the world, when people are, you know, struggling for their own democracy or struggling for human rights, it's America. They look up to America as the ideal, and it's not to say again that America is the perfect place, but at least the ideal of America is the thing that people are aspiring to, and that's that's. That's one of the most powerful things I think about the United States, which is people do believe that, you know, those words, you know, you know, that all men are created equal and, uh, you know, endowed with certain inalienable rights, including life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Those words have inspired people, I think, all over the globe, including uh, people in Africa. And that's kind of was one of the points of my book, which is that, Af you know, Black Americans, who the descendants of those slaves taken to Africa, uh, instead of trying to go back to a mythic Africa that they think was you know, a better place before slavery, should be uh, helping in that fight, in that struggle to transform America into that more perfect union that it could be. Yes, absolutely. I mean, you do need to read the book in order to make sense of your statement, given Africa's history of killings and repression and false promise and general horror. Um, so, of course, this led you to the thorny question, if this is Africa, what does it mean for me to be an African-American? Well, well, that's right. And it was a, as I say in the book, it was a term that I was never terribly comfortable with because African-American, uh, first of all, implies that I've got some uh, uh, lineage that I can trace back to Africa. And I assume by my skin color that I can. But I mean, unlike a Unlike an Irish American who can usually tell you in which county from Ireland their ancestors emigrated, or a German American who might know the exact town in Germany that their great great grandfather came from, you know, or or a, you know any any other hyphenated American, a Chinese American can probably tell you the ancestral village in China, you know, where their ancestors emigrated from, possibly passing through Taiwan or Hong Kong on the way. Africa is a big place. And, you know, you know, and, and, you know, despite the fact that there's some, you know, DNA testing now that can kind of come close. I mean, most Africans don't know what village it was or what, uh, what area it was or what region it was they were, their ancestors were originally taken from. Uh, most African-Americans or most Black Americans actually have now a mixture of European blood in them as well. And so there's one thing about not actually knowing or being connected to any specific ancestral home or village that made me always kind of think that the term African-American was kind of a, a misnomer for us. But more importantly than that, as I say in the book, 
uh, black people uh, first enslaved and uh, have been a part of the American story for going back for more than 400 years. I mean, so when the first slaves arrived uh, in, in the United States at Jamestown in Virginia, that was before they were even, there were even like the, the 13 original colonies. And so to call us hyphenated Americans, we're African Americans the same way you have, you know, Chinese Americans or Arab Americans or others. To me, that kind of has always been a way of kind of denying our Americanness, that we were there at the founding, that we were there from the very beginnings of America. And if you look at some of the, uh, the most indigenous things in America that you can think of. I mean, what would you think of? What's really so indigenous American that's gone around the world? I mean, jazz music, uh, basketball, uh, food, cooking, uh, you know, it's, it's, all, it's all known for its, its black influence. That black influence has been the influence of America and you can see it kind of everywhere. And so, you know, in, I think we are among the most indigenous Americans other than the Native Americans and the original European settlers. So again, I, you know, my, my thinking was that it, it devalued us as Americans who had a rightful place to be and a rightful um, uh, role in helping shape America to call us kind of African Americans. Because, you know, you know, it's interesting to note after the Civil War, there was a, a movement among some of the uh, former slaveholding states of the old Confederacy defeated by the North to try to deny the Africans, the freed African slaves, their Americanness. And that was the reason that they put in the amendment saying anyone born in America on American soil is an American citizen. Nobody quite understands the reason for that. The reason for it was because there was this movement among the racist white Confederate states after the Civil War to try to say that, well, the blacks can't vote because they're actually not Americans, they're really Africans. And so, you know, the idea that, that calling us African Americans now seems to be denying mm. us our Americanness. Yeah, yeah. I mean, go, going back to your time in Africa, Keith, uh, you covered enough African conflict to fill several volumes. In fact, you said that you had given up counting the number of African countries you had visited, but it was Somalia that seemed to break your spirit and you became disillusioned with the continent. Yeah, you know, Somalia, and I guess compounded later on by Rwanda, but Somalia really was kind of the breaking point. And, you know, it was a uh, it was so I ironic because, I mean, it went in, you know, it, we went into Somalia, myself and the other journalists went in initially seeing what was a famine, a famine that was man-made, not natural causes. And, and, by, and by thinking that our work as journalists exposing the story, putting it on the front page, shoving it on the front page of the Washington Post where policymakers could see it, might lead to some resolution, might lead to a good outcome here. And it did lead initially to uh, the the mission called Operation Restore Hope, uh, and when you think about how, how how ironic that title was, restoring hope, uh, it was supposed to be bringing in food and feeding people, and also disarming the warlords who were in 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 involved in kind of causing this man-made famine in the first place. But you know the problem became first of all that you know we don't do nation building very well. America got pretty sick and tired you know very quickly after uh, distributing food, deciding that well we don't want to stay here and. Uh, in this African country and potentially take casualties. So they turned it, the entire operation over to an ill-equipped uh, United Nations force that never had the mandate that it needed to go out. And even though it had this new chapter seven mandate under the United Nations to actually use aggressive means, it never really had the backup it needed, the equipment it needed, the manpower it needed, and basically the United States support it would have needed to do what really needed to be done, which was disarm these these warlord factions. When the Americans first came in with the U.S. Marines, 
you know, at the end of 1992, the warlords just kind of hid their weapons and buried and then buried their, their heavy arms and decided to go uh, sit back and wait and fight for another day. That other day came when the Americans announced they were going to withdraw the bulk of their forces and turn this over to this ill-equipped United Nations force because America had basically very little staying power to do the kind of the hard work of nation building. And so I kind of watched with disillusionment as this 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 operation that was supposed to take this lawless country that had descended into anarchy after the fall of the uh, dictator Mohammed Siad Barre, and it was supposed to turn it into this kind of functioning democracy in Africa, but we just didn't have the staying power or the willpower to do it, uh, especially we had a transfer from the Bush administration to the Clinton administration, which was elected in 92. Bill Clinton kind of inherited this thing and he couldn't wait to get out fast enough, and the whole thing kind of fell into chaos yet again, and if you look now, it's still in chaos. I mean, and and you know, and it's 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 a sad story because of all the manpower and all the money that was pumped into Somalia that uh, that the world community basically still has not been able to restore anything amounting to a functioning, you know, a pr prosperous uh, uh, country there. And so it was really kind of a disappointment. And that was really kind of what turned me off to the whole idea of nation building in the first place. Uh, you know, we've tried it in Afghanistan, we've tried it in Iraq, and, uh, you know, it, it, it just goes to show the limits of nation building. Yeah, I mean, you, you also mentioned Rwanda and the genocide. Ironically, Rwanda was actually too dangerous for you to enter at first because of your skin color. Being mistaken for an African can have lethal consequences in Africa. Absolutely, absolutely. My, my editors insisted, and I heartily agreed with them, that Rwanda was just too dangerous. I had already had a few close calls in, in Somalia where people mistook me for a Somali once I was shoved to the ground and had a machine gun pointed in my face because they, they mistook me for someone else. You know, but the, in Rwanda, they were basically you know, grabbing people out of cars and, and, and chopping them into bits. Uh, you know, people who wore eyeglasses were considered Tutsi elite that were being killed by the Hutu, and I wear eyeglasses. So that was not, you know, that was not something I was willing to risk going into uh, Rwanda. And, and again, I mean, the, the amount of, of death that was caused in, 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 during that genocide, you know, hundreds of thousands, if not a million people killed, and they were executed with crude garden tools. I mean, you know, with, with rakes and hoes and machetes that are used for chopping, you know, for chopping bush and cane. I mean, you're talking, it's, it's, it's medieval. And, and, and it, was, it was just shocking for me. It was shocking to the system to see that this was happening in, in the 1990s, you know, getting ready for the turn of the century, you know, in a world where, you know, the rest of the world was getting ready to go onto the internet. And here they are chopping each other up with, they're chopping their neighbors up with machetes because they, they belong to a different tribe. And I guess that's, that was the breaking point for me when I came out of that thinking that, you know, those black Americans who think somehow they want to come back to Africa and live in a mythical Africa that never existed. I mean, it kind of reminds me of people saying now make America great again, you know, let's go back to Africa where it was everything was great. And my, my message in the book was you don't know what it's like, you don't know how horrific some places could be with the, the various tribal uh, wars, the, uh, the ethnic disputes going on, the geographic disputes. And when you looked around that entire country, every place from uh, Sudan through what was then Zaire, through Cong uh, Congo, uh, Rwanda, Burundi, you know, uh, going over to West Africa. I mean, there were a lot of unresolved conflicts, and there's still today a lot of unresolved conflicts in Africa.
Um, unfortunately, the clock is ticking. So let me just plug the book. It's called Out of America, and it can be purchased through Amazon and Kindle. Um, but before we leave you, Keith, we cannot ignore the big story of the day because this podcast is actually going out on the day of the U.S. elections. How do you think it's going? Dare I ask you who you want to win? Well, I, I think the last four years have been a nightmare, a mistake. Uh, you know, I think so. I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm biased in that regard because I'd like to see American democracy succeed. I'd hate to make a prediction because all predictions were wrong in 2016, but at this point, uh, it looks like barring any shenanigans on the part of the Trump administration that the, the chances are that he's going to be out by the time your listeners hear this. Uh, the reason is you get the best, you know, because I was a political reporter before I went overseas, the best track of a, a, an incumbent president and how they're going to do in their reelection is their job approval rating. And Trump's job approval rating has been between 42 and 44 or 45 percent for most of his presidency. Now it's down in the lower uh, end of that range. So it's hard to see how his vote count uh, nationwide gets over 42 or 44 percent. And secondly, Joe Biden's poll numbers have been about hovering around 50 percent or more in nationwide and in those uh, pivotal swing states uh, pretty much since March or April. Uh, he's not. He's very much. He's very much been hovering around that 50% mark, which is crucial. So, which means that for Trump to win, he'd have to peel away some voters who have already decided for Biden. And finally, I would say, last time around, don't forget there were two pretty formidable third-party candidates who were sucking votes away from Hillary Clinton. You had a Green Party candidate, and you had a uh, Libertarian Party candidate, Gary Johnson and Jill Stein for the Green Party. This year, the Green, the third-party candidates are 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 minuscule. They're not getting any votes really, and so. And you don't have, finally, you don't have this kind of late, any late-breaking scandals going against Biden. You add that all together, you lump on top of that the coronavirus pandemic, which Trump has badly mishandled, and I think it would be a miracle for him to win. The question would be, does he relinquish power, you know, upon learning he has lost, or does he try to do some shenanigans and discount mail-in votes or other things to try to cling to power, which I don't really see happening. Fascinating times we're living in, Keith. Well, unfortunately, we're out of time. Thank you so much, Keith Richberg, for joining me on Conversations with Pete Wood. You've just listened to snippets from my interviews with Mark Olden, Lisa Highwood, Lachlan Cahoon, and Keith Richberg. All the very best for 2021. Stay safe and keep listening.